at some point, we do have to hand everything over to the next generation and they get to call the rules of what the revolution would be. That's what's wrong with America right now. That's what's wrong with the world right now. You got these old men running everything. Hello, everyone. This is Open Book with Betty's Booklist, the show where your favorite authors are an open book and tell me all about their exciting new releases. Today, I'm joined by the absolutely iconic Harvey Firestein. Harvey is a Tony award-winning playwright and actor and one of the first openly gay celebrities. I am a huge admirer of his work and am starstruck by his immense talent. His memoir, I Was Better Last Night, was touching, exciting, and reminded me what it means to be creative. It is a must read. Hello, it's so nice to meet you. I'm so excited to talk. Well, I, I am too. I, 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 you're in Boston. I'm in Connecticut. We, we, we can have a, like an American Revolution. <laughs> well, I loved your memoir. It was better last night. Could you start by telling us a little bit about what your memoir is about? I know it's hard to get your whole life into a few sentences. Yeah, that's kind of hard. I can tell you what the title is about. <laughs> I always thought that would make a great saying on a tomb you know, on a headstone. I was better last night. I mean, it's truth in advertising. But um, since I decided I'll probably get cremated and just, you know, thrown out on the lawn, uh, fertilizer, uh, I figured I could, I could put it on a memoir and that would be nice. <laughs> I mean, that's a good one. I thought it was from, in your book, when you were like, you always tell people it was better last night whenever you performed. Well, that's, and that's the truth. And that's true. All actors do that. All actors, when you come backstage, always say, oh, you should have been here last night. The audience was better. Oh, I hit the wrong. Oh, I did this one. I did that. Oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. That's just life in the live theater. So, yeah, there are there are multi layers to me and my words. You know, there can be three stories for one line. It's just the way life is, isn't it? Mm hmm. Well, I loved reading all of your stories. I was on a trip through Italy while I was reading your book. So I was sitting on all the trains like pouring through it. And I really liked your first story about wanting to have the better costume in the school play as a child. How did right. you decide to sit down and write that first? What was it about that story? Well, what, ha what ha happened was COVID hit, you know? And so I figured uh, it'll probably last a week or whatever that we'll be on lockdown. So um, I cleaned my desk and then um, we were still on lockdown. So I cleaned the refrigerator. Uh, but when it got to the freezer, I said, that's enough cleaning. Um, and then, as you see in the book, I made quilts. So, um, and I owed a whole bunch of quilts. So, cause people had babies or they got married or whatever. So you gotta provide it. So I went and I made five quilts in a row and we were still on lockdown. And my agent said to me, have you ever thought of writing a memoir? And I said, oh no, I, you know, I, I'm very dyslexic as I say in the book and, and um, writing long form is kind of a challenge for me. That's why I write plays and movies and stuff because you don't even have to make sentences, you know, dialogue don't even have to have a sentence. So, um, and then I thought of my own advice in the book. Um, well, the advice that Ronald Duvall, the creator of the theater, The Ridiculous, gave me once when he said to me, why don't you write a play? And I said, oh, because I can't spell. And he said, um, there are people that get $2 an hour who can fix your spelling. You go ahead and write. And so I thought of that advice and um, sat myself down. So 
one of the first stories that came to mind was this story about second grade when they were putting on, when our school was putting on Sleeping Beauty. And my friend Philomena got the role of the evil witch. And I got the role of the king. I don't want to play the king. I, I the king got like a, a Reynolds wrap crown and, and, and had a bedspread tied around my neck. You know? It wasn't very exciting. While she got to paint her face green and wear red lipstick. And we went to the candy store. We bought these long black plastic nails. I think um, they might have been licorice even. But they, you know, you could eat them. Anyway, I was very jealous. I was really jealous. And um, so when it came to Halloween and we were going to have our Halloween party, I went. Um, up to my mother's room and swiped her makeup and went into the bathroom and painted my face up and then realized, uh, boys, you probably not do this and then go out for a Halloween party. So I mushed it all up and made myself look like a zombie, a girl zombie, but still a zombie. Well, so I wrote that story and I sent it to Philomena. Philomena and I have been friends since kindergarten. So I figured, let's see if it means anything to her before I show it to anybody else. So I sent it to Philomena and she sent back the photograph that's in the book of me in that drag. Um, she saved it all these years. And so that obviously meant something to her. And I said, okay, this story probably means something to somebody, let's keep going. And that's how it all started. Well, nice. It's a good beginning. I'm glad it got the ball rolling there and that she had that photo. I love seeing all the photos interspersed in the book. I feel like it really brought it to life. Right. Well, the, my editor, Peter Gethers, is a wonderful editor. He, he, he cut me off. <laughs> he cut really? me off. I could have done a whole book of photos. <laughs> well, I've got, I mean, I'm nearly 70 years old. I've been in just the showbiz photos alone, I've been since 1972, 73, 71. I've photos since 71 in theater. So I, I, I could fill a couple books with, with photos. But he said, um, this book is too good. Uh, he said, I don't want it to look like a showbiz book. I want it to look like a book because that's what it is. It's, it's better than that. So um, we have about 50 photographs in there. And that was hard to choose. My favorite one was the one where you had your name on the billboard behind you. And you had the one from when it oh. first went up. And then you had the more recent one. And you were I, just like lit up in the second one. I feel like it was amazing. Uh, yeah, we what we did, what, what we um, the first photograph was when Torch Song Trilogy got to Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater. So I think it was the little theater at that time. We hadn't changed the name. We changed the name during our run because um, they tore down the Helen Hayes Theater. Uh, so anyway, so it's a photograph of me under the marquee of that theater in 1982. And then they just revived Tort Song and it ended up back at that theater again in 2020, I guess, or 19, 2019. And so we, we duplicated that photograph and then I put the two next to each other. And I'm sure I'm not aging all that well. But it's, 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 it's nice to see I'm still alive. No, it looks great because the excitement was there. That's what really counts, you know? Yes, the excitement is always there. Was that when Torch Song made it so big, was that the moment that you felt that you'd made it? 
Oh, 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 no, Cookie. I never wanted to be in show business. I had nothing, it was not, I wasn't looking to make it. I was not looking, you know, most showbiz bios you read, you know, they go watch a movie or they see a show and they go, that's ah, me. I'm going to be up on that stage one day. Or I'm going to be up on that screen. You know me. I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be an artist. I knew I wasn't a very good artist, but I still felt I could be in the art world. Um, this was the 60s and a lot of stuff was bubbling up at that time, the whole underground and all that. And there were a lot of artists that weren't that great artists, but they were thinkers. They were, it was conceptual art and, 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 that, and I loved that whole world. So I was first at the High School of Art and Design uh, where I was learning a uh, trade. I was learning to do paste-ups and I was learning to print photographs and they, it was a vocational school for the arts. So you learned all that stuff so you could make a living. And then I went to Pratt uh, as, where I studied painting, which nearly killed all the art out of me. Bad teachers, bad teachers can ruin lives. Um, I had terrible teachers at Pratt, uh, but at the same time, I was already working with people like Andy Warhol, and I was already part of that underground scene. So as part of that underground scene, I was doing theater. I was, I began to write, um, I, 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 uh, but I was designing sets. I was not so much with costumes, but I was doing all kinds of other stuff, uh, doing posters. And um, so I... When Torsum got to Broadway, it was just something else. It was never, that wasn't the goal. That was never the goal. I let, here's the, and it's in the, it's in the book. It's in the stories in the book. We had moved Torsum Trilogy to an off-Broadway theater uh, where it was a, a, a huge hit. I came out of the subway one day and looked across the street. I came out of Christopher Street and I looked across 7th Avenue and there was a line from the box office all the way around the corner and disappeared down the block. And I went into a panic. I said, oh my God, we're a hit. And that means it's going to run for a long time. And that means I'm stuck doing this. Well, I wanted to go on and do other things. I was writing at that time, I was writing La Caja Fall. I'd already finished another play called Spook House. I wanted to move on. I wanted to keep, and here was this hit show that kept me employed six days a week working there. Um, so when they came to me to move the show from Off-Broadway to Broadway, <coughs> excuse me, I said, yeah, let's move it because I figured I'll get a Broadway credit and the show will close. It's never going to run on Broadway. This show about a, a, a drag queen falling in love and adopting a son and his mother yelling at him and all this. Broadway doesn't do that. So I figured, okay, let's move it to Broadway. It'll last a couple of weeks and I, I, I can get unemployment and uh, we're out of here. And it ran four and a half years. Mm -hmm. Shows you how much I know. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like you were always in pursuit of just like being a creative, being an artist rather than any one specific thing. It just really felt amazing and personal and inspiring to hear about you doing so many different creative things and like figuring it out and figuring out that you liked doing so many things your whole life. Yeah, well, uh, that's and I think I think people do limit themselves. Um, and I don't I don't really know why. Um, 
There's no, there's no reason to go. Now my dogs are going to bark because the UPS man is coming, and and uh, they run, and he's but he's going to leave the box and he's going to put two cookies on it for them. And they will eventually shut up. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't understand. I understand being vi- very busy, and I understand getting busy with your own career, and I understand being uh, keeping it narrow. Um, but I can't do that. And I, and most people can, most people can do more than one thing. I, I, I think you get better at each thing you do. If you take the pressure off it by doing something else, does that make sense? I, I think when I get stuck writing, if I go and bake, um, that takes my brain somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, when I come back to the other chore, I'm fresher. Does that make sense? Yeah, that um, makes sense. And also, and also the, the the problem solving is problem solving, and all art has a lot of problem solving to it. And so, if you're exercising, it's like I think one of the greatest things going on right now, as obnoxious as it is, is that stupid wordle. I think it's a great thing because people that don't usually do crossword puzzles. All of a sudden are playing Wordle and at least for that little word, that little amount of time, that two or three minutes that it takes you to do it, however long it takes you to do it, they're exercising a part of their brain they wouldn't necessarily exercise. And I think it's a fabulous, I think, you know, I hate the New York Times bought it because they're going to charge you for it eventually. But harder too. Excuse me? I hear they made it tougher. Oh, well, because the, the guy who invented it, as I understand, um, um, had 15,000 words. And that was it. He, you know, he said, these are the 15,000 words that it can be. I'm not doing all kinds of other stuff. But now, but now everybody else has jumped on the bandwagon. I don't know. I do Queerdle, which is queer wordle. That's fine. <laughs> well, it can be fun when they do a word like rainbow. But then they did compact. C O F E H E T. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Oh, it's fascinating. It's actually a fascinating um, uh, concept. It means what is the first word? Um, it, it uh, it's a it's a psychological term that basically means as soon as you're born, you're shoved into heterosexuality. You don't have a choice. You're raised to be heterosexual immediately and then have to sort of fight your way out of it if you find yourself. Um, It's not comprehensive. That's so interesting. I think about that all the time because I have two moms, so I was thrown in a little bit differently and I feel like I didn't assume, we knew so many other people with gay parents that I didn't assume that everyone was straight. And then I went to like regular high school and was like, oh my goodness. I thought yeah. wrong. <laughs> right. Well, you, yeah, you had a, you had, I, I didn't get my gay parents. I had straight parents, but I got gay parents when I started working at a community theater at 13 because the director of the community theater and his lover had been together 30 something years. And so they were the first gay couple I knew. I mean, I knew gay kids. Mm-hmm. but I didn't know gay adults really well. And they were the first gay couple. So I just 
grew up like you in some ways that I just thought it was very normal. I didn't know he was supposed to be unhappy and miserable and all that stuff. So I started reading books and, and literature. And then all of a sudden I said, oh, gay people are supposed to be sad and suicidal and, mm -hmm. you know, like reading plays like Boys in the Band or, you know, the, the Tea and Sympathy or, you know, all that crap. So, um, so I also grew up that way until I came out into the world and, and found out we were supposed to be miserable. So, so you and I lucked out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that if everyone was raised with gay parents, there would be a lot more people who get to realize that they're gay, queer, you know? We don't know. They may be. They That's may be. The they just problem. don't know it. I know. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, my generation, and I'm, you know, fairly dinosaur yellow. Um, I'm, I'm going to be 70 in, in June. My generation fought for visibility on a sexual level. We had to prove to the heterosexual majority, though I no longer think they're the majority. Um, I, I, we had to prove that a homosexual, because when I was a kid, I believed there were heterosexuals and homosexuals and everybody else was in the closet. But I was a kid, what did I know? So uh, we had to prove that homosexuality was just as viable and normal and um, biologically uh, 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 um, uh, regular. I don't even know the words, That's it, but it was on a sexual level that we had to prove that, which was hard because we were scaring people into thinking, um, oh, we're going to come for their children or, you know, um, yeah. So they ran to the church. Where the priests got them, but anyway, um, so so that was that was that was our battle, and our battle. The funny part, our battle was won when the younger generation, the generation just after mine, took on marriage equality. I thought they were wasting their time. Between you and me, I thought we've got so much else to do. We've got all kind, you know, we've got. We have all kinds of laws and you can lose your apartment and you can be thrown in jail and then there's therapies that they can shove you into, into psych wards and all that. We have so much, why a wedding? You really care about getting a wedding cake? Are you kidding me? Well, you know what? And then I said, they are the younger people and this is at some point, we do have to hand everything over to the next generation and they get to call the rules of what the revolution would be. That's what's wrong with America right now. That's what's wrong with the world right now. You got these old men running everything. Oh my God, I know. Putin. Somebody said the other day on TV, if Putin was just four inches taller, there'd be no war. <laughs> but also if he was 30 years younger and he wouldn't be a, an old dinosaur trying to make himself viable, make himself important. Anyway, so I thought, these kids are right. Shut up. And if they want marriage equality, I will fight for marriage equality. Well, they turned out to be right because straight people all of a sudden said, wait, it's not about fucking my children. They want to have families. They want yeah, to they be want able to love. live together. They want, they, anybody who's been divorced can tell you what marriage is about. It's property rights. I mean, it's property rights. That's what marriage is about. Division of property. Who owns what? And insurance. They want insurance. They want tax benefits and everything. And so straight people, all of a sudden, who didn't really understand gay rights, all of a sudden went, I get it. 
So that's what our generation, so that was that ge my generation fighting and then the next generation equality. And now we've got a generation who all of a sudden say, next war front, gender. Mm -hmm. We need to look at gender. We need to look at the role of gender. Now, some people like Gloria Steinem have been screaming about that for you know years. There are always people that are ahead of the curve. Uh, she certainly has been. She's been screaming about gender for years. And, um, and now we're all looking at gender. We're all, I don't know where we'll end up. I'll tell you, for an old dinosaur like me, some of it's uncomfortable. I certainly don't like calling people they and them. It feels um, like I'm demoting them from being you to them. It, it feels like a uh, demotion, but that's not my choice, and it's not. And 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 it's my 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 goal to support and my role to uh, to bring help them move forward. So I don't know where this conversation is going to end up, but it's going to move us forward which is the important thing. And we'll come out on the other end, you know, um, knowing who we are a little bit better and understanding what it is to be a human being a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the best outcome or a great outcome would be for it all, for everyone's own feelings about it to be about being human and being them and not being so binary and labeling in their thinking. Yeah, yeah well, that's true, but, but, well, like I said, I just, I just have a problem with terms, them, them, that, them, they, them. But, you know, so I just call you by your name. You know, one of the things, I have a friend, uh, uh, Dr. Jack Dresher, we've been friends also since kindergarten. I have, like, I don't let go of friends unless they die on me. I hang on to them as long as I can. And But he's a big deal psychiatrist. And I, when all this start, started breaking through to my head, I wrote to him and I said, do we have numbers yet on whether kids are identifying more or less as gay now that we have this binary discussion? And he said, it looks like, and I haven't checked with him in the last two years because COVID, nobody's doing anything. But <laughs> he said, it does look like the, the uh, self-identified as gay numbers are going down. They're going down. More people are identifying as non-binary instead. And, oh, uh, wait, really? That's wild. It's not people it changing to identify as queer instead of gay? No, no, no. When I say gay, I'm not talking about the word. I'm talking about yeah. homosexual. Oh, altogether. Yeah, altogether. Yeah, it's not the term. I'm talking about identifying as this is what I am. This is who I am. Um, they're, they're more... Um, my physical uh, body does not reflect who I am. Um, that's that's those numbers are growing. So it's so it's interesting. Like I said, I think we're finding out about being human. I think we're we're complicated creatures, um, and I think we're creatures that are ever changing. And um, and the conversations will keep up. You know, with with. Uh, with this uh, a new generation uh, doing these discoveries. And then all of a sudden they'll find out they're 70 years old and there's a generation that wants to talk about something else. It's just the way it works. But we go, we go through those periods. Uh, there's that story in the book when, when I use the word fruit and I got in so much trouble for using the word fruit. The same thing would have happened had I used the word queer. 
and yet queer now. Oh, now queer's like the go-to, yeah. Or, you know, or, or, you know, fag or, you know, any other. And then, and then you get to the periods where you can't say that word at all, which I always think is the most dangerous. As soon as you say you can't say something um, that says fear to me, I know it, I know that that's not how it's meant. It's meant in, in respect. I respect you too much to use this derogatory word, but to me, it's like, I, I, you can't be scared of words. But then again, I get to choose what I want. You get to choose what you want. You know, it's a funny thing. I think I talk in the book, um, uh, there's a chapter on my play, Casa Valentina. Yeah, that was one of my favorite chapters. Like I thought hearing about how you like made the story the truest version while also trying to be like enriched with the source material was so, so interesting. Well, and it was a lot of source material. I get over the here behind me and all the magazines all the transvestite magazines will come falling out because they they love taking pictures they love publishing magazines they love putting themselves out there anyway i was given the the task of writing a play about a group of heterosexual transvestites male heterosexual transvestites who went to the catskills on weekends to dress as women and believe they had a woman within. They called it the girl within. They believed they were men and women at the same time. Um, and the way they expressed it was by dressing up on weekends uh, up in the Catskills. And I thought to myself, this could be a lot of fun. Well, the people who asked me to do it thought, you know, here's a great comedy for you to write. And I thought, oh yeah, you know, this just writes itself. It's gonna be a lot of laughs. Uh, you know, you got these people there. Obviously, what what more homogenous group could you have than heterosexual transvestites in the Catskills in the late 50s? And then I started doing the research, all of that stuff back there. And I actually met a couple of people, uh, Catherine Cummings, who I mentioned in the book, there's a photograph of her in the book. She just died two weeks ago, in fact. Which oh, I'm, really I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm just writing to her. Before we went on, I was just writing a letter to her daughter um, because that was a complicated relationship. I, I, I would think you could understand because Catherine was always trying to get back with her wife because she still was in love with her wife and the wife didn't, anyway, you can imagine. Anyway, so I find out all this stuff and I come to realize in my stupid way, if this group doesn't agree on anything and they agreed on nothing, one loved to wear underwear, one, it was all about gowns, one, it was all about pinafores, one just wanted to wear house dresses and do housework. One of them, you know, one of them only lived in the mirror. One, had, a lot of them wanted photographs. They all liked photographs. Um, one, they screamed and yelled about their heterosexuality, but several of them had sex with heterosexual men all the time because when they were in drag, they felt they were heterosexual women and therefore I would have sex with heterosexual men. They were nothing simple about them and they were fighting in the 50s and early 60s. They were fighting for recognition in the world. They believed that homosexuality would never be accepted but transvestitism would be. They were so fascinating. And I just, I mean, we cut 
when we were in rehearsal, we cut half the play because I could have written 80 hours about them. They were so fascinating. And I love that play. Um, it's a, it's a, and it's, and it's available, um, you know, uh, it's published so you can, you can read it if you ever, it's great because they put out these, not only are they telling their stories in the play, but they, but their political views are insane and the government blackmailing them and um, absolutely fascinating lives, fascinating lives. But I came away saying, when I was a kid, we had something called Brotherhood Day. I don't know if that still existed by the time you were a kid, but it was all about, we're all the same, you know? We dressed up, you know, one group of kids was dressed up as Russians, one was dressed up as Mexican, one was dressed up as African, and we were all brotherhood, you know, held hands, we were all the UN together, we we're all the same. And I'm doing that by, and I'm saying, we've been giving the wrong message all these years. The message should be, none of us is the same. Every one of us is a glorious individual, completely different. I'm not the same as my brother. I'm not the same as my best friend. I'm not the same as anybody I know. Shouldn't I be accepted for who I am as I would accept you for who you are? Let's, instead of saying we're all the same and we're not, I think that just breaks us into groups more. I think if we accepted each other for our glorious differences and said, we're all completely different, let us celebrate our differences. I think we take a giant step forward. Mm -hmm. It's a Harvey thing. It's a Harvey thing. <laughs> I agree. I, I feel like it's it would be great if we could just live and let live and like accept people who for exactly who they are, you know? Yeah. Cause they ain't gonna change. They're not, you know, you can say, I don't accept you for who you are. It's not gonna change them. You can shove them back in the closet. That's true. You can throw them in jail. That's true. You're not changing them. Yeah, it just makes people yeah. miserable. It's just, and, and, and self-loathing and suicidal and everything else that every other negative thing. The only thing that comes out of it is maybe you feel better cause you put somebody else down. Well, if you need, to put it down other people to make yourself feel better. You need to take care of yourself. You need a psychiatrist of your own. So I, I, I yeah, anyway, that's the way I look at it. It's one of, it's one of the Harvey's steps to happiness. <laughs> well, hopefully everyone can do that. Um, so I'm a huge Newsies fan and I loved the movie, even though I know the movie isn't as good as the play, but I also saw the play and loved it. <laughs> Um, what do you think it is about certain plays that like create such a diehard fan base? Like I've always been like obsessed with Newsies. I just loved it. Right. And a lot of kids did. And we call and we called them we we named them the fansies. Oh, it was really? the and they were the fansies. And the fansies would come to the theater and see the show over and over and over again. Now I knew this was a, a thing because I used that movie. Uh, to babysit my nephews. Yeah, and you said they loved it and you didn't love it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I couldn't stand it. I thought it was stupid beyond words. But I did like the songs. They were written by Alan Menken, who lives over there. You can't see him through the snow at the moment, but he lives over there. And, uh, he lives like two miles that way. But um, uh, I love the score. Uh, but I thought it was a pretty awful movie, you know. I mean, it was a children's movie with an attempted rape in it. Was that really necessary to try and rape the, the sister? I, I don't think so. Anyway, um, 
when I took on the challenge, um, which nobody asked me to do, in fact, Disney didn't want me to do it. And I had to decide what it was that made kids like you nuts about that thing and not lose any of that. So I kept what I felt you ha I had to keep. I got rid of Bill Pullman's role and he forgives me for it. He doesn't forgive me. But, um, and, I, and, I, and I got rid of a sister that was almost raped. No need for her. And because and I, I wanted a female her hero in it. And so I created a hero. I created a, a woman who was breaking into being a reporter at a time when women weren't reporters. And, um, and you know, and, and restructured it. And we wrote new songs and all that. And tried as hard as I could to keep that which kids loved and jettison that which adults messed up. Um, and, and we were very successful. The show is just about to open in London. It's, it, it's always playing somewhere. Um, it played on Broadway, uh, it, it, and it's toured everywhere. We filmed it in, I think, in Cal I think they were in California when we filmed it. So we filmed it. And so it's on Disney plus, I think you can, you can see that show on Disney plus. Um, but it's always, it's news is always around and the fansies are always around in there. And it gives them such joy. It's, and you know, it's so great to have a show. It's not like a lot of kids love Lion King and they go to a show like Lion King. These kids that love Newsies are very different. They, well, you know, you can tell that, you can tell your audience better than I. You just, yeah, what is it that does it for you about it? I don't know. I mean, I've, I loved the movie when I was a little kid. Every time I was homesick, I would watch Newsies. That was the, what I always did from when I was little. But I feel like you just love the characters so much and the songs give me chills. Like I love them. And I know the play was different, but I love the play just as much when I saw it in New York. Well, what I tried to do was make the message about empowerment of children, what we were just talking about before, about the next generation. So um, I have, well, Jack, I turned him from- Yeah, they triumph. Know. I like how they triumph over the like evil adults, I guess, as a kid. I but, it's, but also I gave him a goal in life of wanting to be an artist. Um, I gave Catherine the goal of wanting to be a reporter. I mean, I tried to make these kids have some sort of brains other than just kids. Um, and then when they win the strike at the end, I wrote a speech for Roosevelt, which I'm always quoting, um, in which he says, there comes a time when every generation must hand the government and the future of the world over to the next generation. And I believe in your hands, we're, we're safe and we'll prosper. And I, and I just, you know, I felt that was what I wanted to give the kids in the audience. I wanted to give them the world. I wanted them to understand they were now going to inherit the world and they had to take it on. I wanted to give that message to kids um, seeing Newsies. And so hopefully, you know, that's, that's what they felt. So everyone, I hope you've already read It Was Better Last Night before you watch this. If you haven't, read it and then watch this again. Go buy it. It's amazing. I absolutely loved it. And Harvey, thank you for coming on Open Book. And, and remember, you don't have to go to Italy to read it. You can make believe you're in Italy to read it. That might smell nicer. But uh, yes, please go get the book, read it, and enjoy it. Thank you all for watching. You can listen to an extended cut of Open Book on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe for more bookish content.